0: Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be looking at the last verse in that chapter and talking this morning on the subject matter of Christian labor, Christian labor. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Again, just one verse. Verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul says there, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, we thank you for the promise here in this scripture. That whatever we do for you will last. It will have eternal consequences. Lord, as we think about our labor, as we think about our work, I pray that we would be motivated and encouraged to be diligent about your business. Lord, help us to focus less upon ourselves and more on what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, tomorrow we'll be celebrating Labor Day, and it's always kind of struck me as being a little bit funny that as we celebrate Labor Day tomorrow, we celebrate it by not doing any labor. Uh, Most of us take the day off. It's considered also the unofficial end of summertime in the United States and the holiday has become a federal holiday. Labor Day is intended to honor the American labor movement and the contributions that workers have made to the strength, the prosperity, the laws, and the well-being of this country. You see, in the late 1800s, at the height of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, the average American worked 12-hour days, 7 days a week, in order even to eke out a basic living. Now, despite restrictions in some states, children as young as five and six years of age toiled in the mills and the factories and the mines across this country, earning a fraction of their adult counterparts. People of all ages, particularly the very poor and recent immigrants, often faced extremely unsafe working conditions. Now as manufacturing increasingly supplanted agriculture as the wellspring of the American economy, labor unions that had first appeared in the late 18th century grew more prominent and more vocal. They began organizing strikes and rallies to protest the poor conditions and to compel employers to negotiate better hours and pay many of these events many of these protests and rallies turned violent on September the 5th 1882 10,000 workers took unpaid off to unpaid time off to march from city hall to Union Square in New York City holding the first Labor Day parade in United States history. The idea of a workman's holiday celebrated on the first Monday in September caught on in other industrial centers across the country and many states passed legislation recognizing it and supporting it. In 1887, Oregon was the first state in the nation to make Labor Day an official public holiday. By the time it became an official federal holiday in 1894, 30 states had it on their books as an official holiday. Well, folks, as we think about Labor Day tomorrow, and as you gather together with your family and have a barbecue or whatever you do on a typical Labor Day, I want you to think tomorrow about. Our labor in the Lord. You see, that has much more far reaching significance. Now, when we talk about our Christian labor, I realize sometimes we prefer to call it simply service, Christian service. But, folks, some of it is labor because sometimes laboring or working for the Lord is very taxing and very exhausting. You and I need to realize this call that is upon our lives and this call sometimes will take a great deal out of us. But as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy, we have a faith to keep and we have a course to run. Paul said, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. And you and I need to live our lives that same way. And Jesus said, as we labor for God's kingdom work, it's like a plowman in the field. And he said, nobody is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven if he puts his hand to the plow and then lets go or looks to the left or the right and turns away. Folks, we've got to be very serious and very diligent about our Christian labor. That's what I want us to look at this morning from this single little verse. I want you to look, first of all, with me this morning at the fact that Christians are to abound in the work of the Lord. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, folks, this verse is not written in a vacuum. It's got a very important context to it and you need to understand that everything that comes before this verse in chapter 15 is the context of what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. If we had time to go back and read all of chapter 15, we would see that Paul is talking about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, that ought to make all the difference in the world what your life is about and what my life is about. He begins here by saying, therefore, and whenever you see a therefore recorded in the scripture, you need to ask yourself what it's there for. It's there for a reason. Some were scoffing over the resurrection and Paul lets them know that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then that would mean that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sin and we're not going to be raised from the dead either. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then there are very logical things that flow out of that. It would mean that your faith in Christ and my faith in Christ is completely in vain. It would also mean that there's no such thing as the forgiveness of sins or the promise of eternal life. If there were no resurrection of the dead, then it would mean that there is no hope whatsoever when you die. When you die, you're buried and you push up daisies, so to speak, your fertilizer, and that's all that death would mean. There would be no hope, no promise whatsoever if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that were the case, why would we even come to church? Why would we even do missions? Why would we even share our faith? It would be pointless. In fact, he makes an even stronger point than that. We would actually be considered as liars and deceivers because we would be testifying to the world that we believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and there's a heavenly hope. But if he's not risen from the dead and there's no heavenly hope, we're testifying of that and that would make us frauds and deceivers and liars. Folks, everything we do in the Christian walk would be a waste of time. And so he wants them to understand very clearly that everything about church, everything about ministry hinges on the validity of the resurrection. It's no wonder to me at all that skeptics down through the ages, when they've tried to attack Christianity, they go directly after the resurrection because they know that if they can unravel the truth of the resurrection, then they can unravel All of the truths of Christianity And so they have tried to attack the resurrection The resurrection of Jesus Christ validated his word Because what did Christ tell his disciples? He told his disciples I'm going to go to Jerusalem In Jerusalem I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be crucified But he said three days later I'm going to rise from the dead If Christ was not raised from the dead then he would have been a liar The resurrection validated the work of Christ because through his resurrection it showed conclusively, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, that God declared Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of the world through the resurrection of the dead. Folks, we have the hope even now of being with Christ if we die even before the glorification of our body, even before we experience the resurrection of the body at the second coming. Should we die, should somebody die this afternoon as many thousands of people will do across the world? If they're believers, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your soul and your spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord in glory. But in addition to that, we have this future hope of the resurrection of the body. Now some skeptics today have tried to straddle the fence and they've tried to say to Christians, Okay, we will give you this much. We will affirm with you the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your future resurrection from the dead, but... We want to confine it to being spiritual only. No physical, no bodily aspect to it whatsoever. Well folks, that's not good enough. Because you see, if the resurrection doesn't also have a physical bodily element to it, then that would mean that the curse that God put on Adam, that God had not fully erased The curse. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, God said you're going to die. You're going to die not only spiritually, but you're going to die physically. You're going to return to the dust. It's through the story of redemption in the Bible that God erases the curse. And so if there's no bodily resurrection, then that would mean that there's an element of the curse that God has not completely reversed. And so it is very essential to Christianity to also affirm the bodily resurrection. Not only the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, but your future bodily resurrection as well. And the Bible says there is a resurrection unto life, there's a resurrection unto death. There's a resurrection unto life for those who are in Christ and there's a resurrection unto death and judgment and condemnation to those who are outside of Christ. So again, Paul's point here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It is to be the foundation and the basis upon which we do everything in ministry. And for a Christian, the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead is to alter and impact everything you do in your life. So the glorious gospel involving the resurrection from the dead is is our foundation. And with that foundation in mind, Paul says here that we are to abound in the work of the Lord. When he says the work of the Lord, the Greek word that he uses for work here carries with it an element of fatigue, an element of labor. We are to abound in the work of the Lord even if it's exhausting and taxing. Folks, where in the world did we get the idea that in salvation only something one way happens? God just gives me something. We think I get the promise of forgiveness, I get peace and love and joy, I get all of those things and then I just ride out my time here on this earth and then I go to heaven one day and in the meantime I just receive all of these things from God and then I just go about my life and my business however I want to live my life. And in Christianity today that's pretty much what you hear. It's a message of cheap grace where you receive everything and you just do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. Folks, that is not New Testament Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. It's a very narcissistic way of looking at life. It's the idea that God exists for me. Life is about me. I need forgiveness. So God gives me forgiveness in heaven. And then I just go back to being me. And God spends all of his time and all of his energies focused on me. God is there for me. And his role is just to make me happy and give me things that I want. The problem is you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Yes, God reconciles you to himself through the death of his son. Yes, God gives you joy and peace. God gives you all those good things. But along with that, he gives you a life that is transformed. You are a new creation in Christ All things are passed away. Behold, everything has become new. And that's why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and nonetheless I live. But the life that I live, I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In conversion, we change our thinking from me to him. Our focus shifts off of us and it shifts to God and living for the glory of God. And folks, that's what we see everywhere on the pages of the New Testament. I think of the call of Levi. Here was Levi, a tax gatherer, a tax collector. And Jesus said, Levi, come and follow me. And the Bible says he left his tax collector's booth. And from that moment on in his life, he followed Christ. He abounded in the work of the Lord. He lived a different kind of life because of Jesus Christ. Peter and James and John and Andrew, those who were fishermen, they did the same thing. They forsook their father's nets and boats and they followed Christ. Their whole life was different. They realized that to be a disciple means we've got to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him. But folks, it's worth it because of the resurrection of the dead. If Christ would have died and remained dead, and then you die and you remain dead, then why live this way? It'd be pointless. But we are to abound in the work of the Lord because of the resurrection. Again, what I'm saying is the resurrection of Jesus Christ ought to make all the difference in the world how you labor for the Lord. Second thing I want you to notice with me this morning is Christians are to abound in the work of the Lord appropriately. Now, what I mean by appropriately is exactly what this verse says. It tells us not only what we're to do, but why we're to do it and how we're to do it. He says that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So first of all, We're to be steadfast. We're to be steadfast as we abound in the work of the Lord. The word steadfast here refers to being settled. It comes from a word that means that that we are to take a seat. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? It means that we are settled in our minds on our convictions to the point that we can take a seat. We are firmly established in those convictions. We know what we believe and we know why we believe it. And so with this word steadfast here, it really ties in to Christian thinking. It ties in to the mindset Romans 12, 2 says we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's what this word steadfast here literally refers to. We're to be transformed in our thinking. We are to know what we believe. We are to know why we believe it. We are to be focused in our lives as believers on the Word of God and on sound doctrine. Because you see, that's going to impact how we serve too, whether or not we serve in truth or not. A couple of decades ago, Christian writers, Christian writers started talking about, and preachers started preaching about a, a trend that is sweeping America in the American Evangelical Church anti-intellectualism. In other words, what these Christian writers were saying is nobody in the church wants to think anymore. We want to feel. Preacher, make me feel good. I want to come to church and I want to feel it. I don't want to have to think. I think all week. I don't want to have to think. I want to come to church and I want to get the warm fuzzies. I want to get the goosebumps. Don't make me think about anything. And yet, Paul is saying just the opposite here. We need to meditate on the scripture. We need to meditate on the great doctrines of our faith so that we will be settled in our convictions so that we are able to be steadfast and not tossed to and fro by every little fad in everything that comes along. Steadfast. Folks, it's thinking on the gospel and about the gospel that helps us to be steadfast and settled. And that's going to impact how we serve, whether we're going to abound in the work of the Lord or not. Folks, there is a massive cultural shift happening out there in society today. And I don't have to tell you about that. You live it every day of your life. You've experienced it. In many many sectors of society today, Christianity is having to even fight for the right to be heard. It's important for us to be steadfast, knowing what we believe and why. Let me give you an illustration of where we have gone with this and how we've got to engage this culture. You may have read about what's happened in Dearborn, Michigan, a huge Muslim population there, and they have this huge Muslim festival there every year. Well, some Christians wanted to go to that festival in that park and simply set up a booth and pass out Christian literature, and they were instructed by the local authorities that they would not be able to do that. They would have to move outside the park. Well, they moved outside the park, and the police said, you can't be there either. They said, okay, we're not even going to engage people verbally. We're just going to give out Christian literature. That's all we're going to do on the sidewalks of a city in America. We're just going to give out copies of the Bible. And they said, no, you can't do that. They arrested them. These Christians have been engaged in a three-year-long battle, legal battle, which fortunately they finally won. But my point is, in this kind of culture today, we've got to know, because of what we're going to face out there, we've got to know what we believe and why we believe it if we're going to engage effectively this culture. We can't go on feeling. We've got to go on firm convictions. If we go on feelings, a man might get up one Sunday morning and say, you know what, I don't feel like going to church this morning. I don't feel like teaching my Sunday school lesson. But if he's thinking about the great doctrines of our faith, out of gratitude, he's going to serve the Lord. He's going to abound in the work of the Lord. Not only he says be steadfast here, but he also says we are to abound in the work of the Lord with tenacity. Look at the word that he uses next. He says we are to be immovable. In other words, we are to have a determination. We are to have a tenacity about our service for Christ. And that ties in also with being steadfast. You see, if you're steadfast in what you believe, if your feet are firmly planted in sound doctrine, you're not not going to constantly be changing your opinions on everything. You're going to have convictions. There's a big difference between convictions and opinions. Our opinions about something may change, but our convictions, if they're based on the Word of God, dare not change. Our convictions help us To be immovable in this kind of world that we live in. And folks, let's face it again, another illustration of what's going on. Our culture is constantly wanting us to move in our convictions. Whatever direction the culture is moving in, given a certain topic, they're wanting Christians to move right along with them. Instead of being immovable, they want us to be pliable. Dr. D. James Kennedy was a great pastor out of the state of Florida. He's deceased now, but his ministry lives on. And they have found out recently, the D. James Kennedy Ministries out of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, they have discovered recently that their ministry has been put on a hate list. By the LGBTQ community because their ministry won't go along with the new gay agenda. Folks, that's going to happen more and more across this nation. Do you realize that? Do you realize any pastor, any ministry who doesn't move with the culture wherever the culture is moving on a given issue at a given time? If we don't move with the culture, we're going to be put on lists like this. But I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is saying here that you and I are to be immovable if our convictions are based on the inspired and errant word of the living God. I tell you what, as long as I've got breath in me, I'm going to preach the word of God. I'm going to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and try to be true as best as I know how to biblical doctrine that is honoring to Christ and honoring to God. And guess what? By being immovable like that, you and I are not going to be received very well. But Paul is saying here, that's how we've got to abound in the work of the Lord. We can't just float along with the culture believing anything and everything at any given time. How are we going to be salt and light for this culture? How are we going to exalt the name of Christ and point people to Jesus if we don't stand for something? We've got to be immovable in the work of the Lord. We've got to be tenacious about our convictions. And not only tenacious and and immovable, but he goes on to say here also that we've got to abound in the Lord, in the work of the Lord with constancy. He says we're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. The idea of abounding always means doing more than just meeting the basic requirements. In fact, the phrase means that we're even to overdo it. We're to overdo it. Have you ever worked with anybody that all they cared about was just squeaking by? I remember that from back in my school days. I was the kind of student, if I made a 98 on a project, I was upset that I didn't make a 100. I guess I was just OCD about that. But you know you know what it's like to be put on a team where you do a team project. And I would be put on teams sometimes with guys. If 69 is failing and 70 is passing, they were quite happy to make a 70. I mean, that just tickled them to death. Well, I wanted to make a hundred. So you know what happens there, right? Who ends up doing all the work? You end up doing all the work. Paul is saying when it comes to our work in the Lord, we are to always abound in the work of the Lord. We're not to be looking to just do the bare minimum and get by. And the word he uses for abounding, a word picture back in ancient times of that Greek word abounding was when a river would get out of its banks and flood a whole area. You can certainly relate to that right now, right? With all the news in Houston, all the the water that's gotten beyond the boundaries of where it's supposed to be and flooded the whole area. Well, Paul is saying here, when it comes to our work for the Lord, we're to be overflowing. We're to get outside of our boundaries. We're to we're to just spill over. We're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord Is that how you serve the Lord? Again, not just thinking of what little can I get by with Again, the idea is overdoing it Boy, wouldn't that be great to come to church And everybody's thinking, how can I overdo my service? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I'll give you a great biblical example. Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Paul's under house arrest. And the Philippians hear about him and they're concerned about him and so they send Epaphroditus to Paul and they've got a material gift to give to him. Epaphroditus gets there and ministers to Paul. Epaphroditus ends up getting sick and Paul has to end up sending Epaphroditus back because the Philippians are worried about him. And when he sends Epaphroditus back, Paul gives a testimony of Epaphroditus. He says, listen, I want to tell you what what a, what a a... Fine example of service this guy was. When this guy got here to minister to me, he went above and beyond. In fact, he gave of his very life for the sake of the gospel. That's how we're to be. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not thinking again how little we can get away with, but Lord, how much can I do for you? Lord, can I do a little bit more? Give me a little bit more to do. That's how we're supposed to be. We need to overflow. And then, thirdly, we see here that Christians are to abound in the work of the Lord assuredly. He says, knowing, not thinking, but knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Think of all the things you and I have done that have no eternal value to them whatsoever. But folks, whatever we do for the Lord Jesus has eternal consequences. I think of that situation in the Gospels where Mary came in and broke that vial of of perfume and and poured it over Jesus' feet. And she anointed his feet and the disciples got angry about it. And Jesus said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Wherever the Gospel is preached in the future, what she has done is going to be remembered. In that passage in Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And he says to the sheep, enter into my kingdom because you fed me and you took care of me. And they said, Lord, when did we do that? And Jesus said, whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. God remembers. The book of Malachi says God is keeping records. God remembers everything we do for Him. And Paul is saying here, it will not be in vain. It will not be in vain. You abound in the work of the Lord and one of these days when he calls you home or he comes back for his bride, whichever happens first, if you've been abounding in the work of the Lord, you're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you've lived for yourself or your own agenda, then you're not going to hear those words. What are you living for? Are you living for the praise of men or the praise of God? Tomorrow, Labor Day, I want you to think about your labor for the Lord. Are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Are you abounding properly or appropriately with steadfastness, with tenacity, with constancy? If you are, you can be assured it will not be in vain. I want you to bow with me in prayer, please. Just before God right now, think about your life. Are you steadfast? Are you immovable? Do you know what you believe and why? Are you settled in your convictions? I would beg of you, if you're not, would you please come to us and say, would you help me? Would you help me to understand more or better about Orthodox Christian doctrine? Because I want to be able to defend my faith. I want to be able to be a witness. Maybe I'm talking to somebody this morning that you know that you just try to get by. The bare minimum. What's the least I can do? You need a heart change. In light of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross for you when he laid down his life and shed his blood. I'm here to tell you, you need a heart change if you're thinking about what little can I do. Make it your prayer, God, I want to overflow. I want to abound. I want to go be, uh, beyond, above and beyond. Lord, give me more to do. And some of you this morning, I want you to remember about the greatest work of all. That was done 2,000 years ago on the cross. Jesus died. For you, There's not a doubt in my mind that somebody here this morning needs to come to Christ. Because you're still trying to focus on your work to get you to heaven. And it will never happen. You will be sorely disappointed. Trust in Christ's work and His work alone. Ask Him to save you. Lord, I pray that Christian labor would be what we are known for. Lord, we are not laboring for salvation because that would be impossible. But we're laboring out of gratitude because you have saved us. Lord, help us to be serious about our work for you about what we believe and why, and then putting that to practice in our daily lives. Lord, help us to lose ourselves in ministry for you. Because you've said that the one who gives away his life will gain it. So help us to lose ourselves for you and your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand?